right. Good evening, everyone. How are you doing? Glad to have you here <laughs> with us. We are In With The Old. We're a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and helping you rediscover the Old Testament for the life of faith. Welcome to, can you believe we're already so deep into the Counterpoint series, Tim, right? This is episode uh, five. We're talking about the naming of Eve tonight. I'm excited for it. Tim and I, as we were talking, getting ready for this episode, we're, we're excited to kind of share some of our various views and debate some of these ideas because I've come away from each of these debates, Tim, with more stuff to go and research and look up on my own time. Yes. But listeners, we are excited to have you here with us. For those of you joining us live tonight on YouTube, welcome. Glad to see you there. Go ahead and jump in the comments follow along with us, ask your questions. And Tim, I want to throw it over to you. How are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing great. You know, uh, we get to talk about Genesis tonight. So that always uh, makes me happy and uh, feels a little bit more like home. Uh, and so I'm excited to talk about the naming of Eve, its implications. And uh, Brian, I couldn't be more happy to do it with you. Yeah, same, Tim. This has been a true pleasure. Just being able to talk about these kind of nerdy things that there aren't many other places that we can talk about it with. <laughs> yes. So uh, we are in Genesis and Tim is right. This is where it feels like home. He did his dissertation in Genesis. So I'm playing the away game as it were, <laughs> but we're talking about the naming of Eve tonight. So just to set up the context, right? In creation account of Genesis, you have two creation accounts side by side. Genesis chapter one, you have the kind of macro view. Here's the creation of all things from the 30,000-foot view, heaven and earth. In Genesis 2, we rewind the story a little bit to day 6, and we're focusing in very specifically on the creation of people, of Adam and Eve. Following that, we have Genesis 3. And we've already talked about that once in the CounterPoint series. We aren't going to rehash that with who the serpent is. But after the story progresses, right, you have curses. First, the serpent is cursed. Then the ground is cursed on behalf of humanity. And there are consequences, both for the man and the woman. And importantly, she is called the woman in both Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Following the curses, the woman is given a name, is named by Adam. We call her Eve. Now, for clarity's sake, we'll probably just say Eve the entire time, but there is a naming process here. And so as we were talking about various topics for this series, Tim brought up the fact of, hey, what do we make of this uh, naming? And so we decided to talk about that tonight. And uh, Tim will give his view here in a few minutes. We start each of these series by giving a high-level overview of our position and then moving into our question and answer time. So I get to go first tonight. So listeners, here's my position on the naming of Eve. I think this story communicates one very important theological truth and contains one little bit of trivia. The trivia is just that trivial, but we'll talk about it. The theological truth is this, that her name represents the tension of the biblical story, the tension between our trusting in the promises of God while also living in a broken world. And the trivia is that she's already had kids. We'll talk about this. But let me start by talking about names. So I have a name. You have a name. Tim has a name. Names in the ancient world, though, had some deep significance. They represented the essential essence of a person. Uh, Trimper Longman said naming captured the essential nature of a person or a thing. To invoke a name or, or to call upon someone's name captured who they were. And this is why, by the way, in the Ten Commandments, I think, there's a command to not take the Lord's name 
as meaningless or empty. It is something significant not to be lightly treaded upon. So names are not just letters that represent the vowel sounds or consonant sounds that we use to talk to one another. They meant more in this context. It was the heart of a person. So that's kind of point one, just to get us on board. Two, the significance of being able to name something given that above definition appears to entail at least two things. First, if you name something, it means that you have or need to at least have the discernment to rightly name the thing. You have to understand this thing's function or essential essence to give it its proper name. And then secondly, it does seem to uh, denote that you have power over the thing in order to give it a name. This is not just present, by the way, in the biblical text. We have this in the ancient Near East. For example, the god Ta allegedly had the power to create anything that he could name, because by naming something, he had the power over it. The Egyptians similarly believed that gaining the power over a god could be possible if you knew the god's true name. So for them, right, the ability to have that name and know a name was very significant. The Bible doesn't go that far with naming, but does seem to say naming has both discernment and power over the thing. Now, third point, there's a significance in the biblical text when we rename characters. We can think of several characters that are renamed. Now, these are mostly in the New Testament. You can think the sons of Zebedee become the Boanerges, the sons of thunder. We see Saul get renamed to Paul. But Tim, I'm guessing in your master's program, just like mine, anytime one of these characters comes about, we were told, pay attention. Name changes usually signify something important in the story. Well, we have a name change here in Genesis 3, so let's pay attention. So that kind of preamble, I'm guessing, Tim, Tim will correct me on his side, but I'm guessing we probably agree on most of those points, that names are significant, naming something is significant, renaming is significant. Now let's get to where we're going to disagree. Now on to Eve. I think there are two things about her name. The first is, by giving her the name Eve, I think we see a trust in God's promises. Now, why do I say this? Well, let's talk about what the name means. So in Hebrew, she's named Shewa. In Greek, it's translated either as Zoe or Yua, which is where eventually Eve will come from. And if you have a study Bible, it's quite right in noting that there's wordplay going on here. It's quite similar to Chaya, or life. Even the Greek bears this out. The zoe that they use in Genesis 3 means life. Now, we're not told this wordplay specifically in the narrative. It's assumed. The writer assumes we know Hebrew and can understand that. But it does come with an explanation. If you have your Bibles and go to Genesis 3.20, you will see that we have this phrase, the man called his wife's name Eve for because she was mother of all life right? So there's a promise that, hey, I trust that life is going to keep going forward. Now, uh, I'll make a note and we'll come back to this. The verb used to be named is the verb kara, and it's in the cal stem. File that away for later. We will come back. But the meaning of this for statement is that there's a recognition of life rather than death. There's beauty here being codified in her name, what her role was and still remains even post-fall. Right? She has not lost. Humanity has not lost the ability to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, Gerhard von Rad, in his commentary on Genesis, said, One must see the man's naming of the woman as an act of faith, an embracing of life, which as a great miracle mystery is maintained and carried by motherhood of woman over hardship and death. See, I think it's this beautiful, right, embracing of 
there are consequences to our sin, but life continues. The story continues. We are not the end. Now, so that's the embracing of the promises of God, but I think there's a flip side. And the flip side is the very fact that we have an act of naming here. That's problematic because we've just talked about names. Names are important. Names are significant. And naming something means you have control over it. I believe this uh, verse in 320 shows that Adam believes that he has control or authority over her more than before. There's now a hierarchy in human relationships that was not there before. And in that we see a sinful break in the man-human or man-wife relationship. Now, why do I say this? Well, back in Genesis 2, 19 to 20, Adam has named things before, but he's only ever named animals. In fact, the exact verb, exact form of the verb in Genesis 2.20, when he names the animals, is the same one that shows up in 3.20. Now, back in Genesis 2, the point of Adam naming things had at least three components. First, it showed that Adam had creative power, right? He can create, much like the God in whose image he has been made. He can create and give names to animals. Second, he has dominion over animals. That's part of the creation mandate. But most importantly, from a narrative sense, third, Adam is not like the animals. He is different. He does not find the companion for him. We can maybe go more over the, the exegesis of Genesis 2 in the Q&A time. But those three things are important because it's only after naming the animals that the woman is created and brought to him. Upon seeing him, we have this beautiful poem, one of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament. Bone of my blown, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. Uh, that wordplay of woman and man is the same in Hebrew and in English. Now, importantly, she shall be called woman is not a naming formula. Adam does not name her. The verb is the exact same as the naming verb used in Genesis 2.20 and 3.20, but we've now changed stems in the Hebrew verbal system to the nephal. The nephal of Korah never once means to name something. Rather, it always means to recognize the name by which the thing is called. And I have examples. We can go to Isaiah 54, 5 and a few other places as well. But here's the important point. The beauty is of that poem is Adam has not named the woman, but instead recognized that God has named her. She is a co-image bearer. Just as God has named him, a word play on ground, so he has named her. She is his co-image bearer. She is his partner. She is his helper. Conversely, this then highlights the tragedy of Genesis chapter 3. He has now relegated her in some manner to the thing he has dominion over, rather than that beautiful image of co-heir in Genesis 2. So, the naming of Eve, on the one hand, I think is a big act of trust. Life will continue forward. Humanity will continue forward. The story is not done. But on the flip side, it shows that there is now a break between men and women. That beautiful bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, reality for which we were created is fundamentally shattered. So those are the two things I think are important. Not really going to try to defend the trivia right now. We can talk about that in the Q&A if you want. Um, but I thought I might as well call it out. So Tim, that's my quick uh, and dirty view. Uh, here I stand and I will turn it over <laughs> to you. Okay. Well, Brian, I really appreciate that. And, uh, and I think we're going to have some good... Uh, good discussion once we get to the Q&A. Uh, but I, I want to start out by saying there is so much uh, that I, I agree with Brian about in terms of his analysis of the text. And, uh, and I think that's going to become more clear. But I, I want to start again 
uh, where Brian started talking about Genesis 1. And, uh, and Brian mentioned this, and, and as we think about Genesis 1, I think Genesis 1 is so important uh, in understanding the unfolding of the narrative in Genesis 2, 3, 4, and beyond. Uh, and here's why. Genesis 1, of course, gives us the creation account, and uh, there's this six-day structure. It's incredibly, uh, it's incredibly organized. It's incredibly beautiful. Uh, it, it's, it's an amazing text that describes God's creation of the world. But as we know, it climaxes in the creation of Adam and Eve, uh, or we should say the first man and the first woman, or humanity, male and female. Uh, they aren't named in Genesis 1, but God creates them in his image, and it explicitly says male and female, he created them. Now, here's why that's so important. Because as we read Genesis 1, I'm convinced, as many scholars are, that Genesis 1 is an example of polemical literature, which just means that Genesis 1 uh, is really meant to show that the Israelites have a different view of cosmology or creation than many of their neighbors around them. Uh, so here's a for instance. Other uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures might have seen the sun as a divine or semi-divine figure. God shows that it's not. He creates it, he appoints it, and he governs it. The same thing, the, the sea creatures or the, the creatures of the deep. Uh, God creates them and places them, them in their uh, proper place, uh, and he controls them. In other words, as we read Genesis 1, there's a lot of polemical material, which is to say the people of Israel had a very different view of creation than their neighbors. And the reason why I want to highlight that is I think the exact same thing is going on in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where God describes the creation of the woman, especially as made in his image. And think about this. Genesis 1 stands as the fountainhead of all of our understanding of creation order. And as we think about women, especially in the culture of, say, Moses or the time of the Egyptians or the time when the law is written, women were not highly valued or, uh, or, or held in high esteem. Uh, in so many ways, they were treated really as, as little less than cattle, as, as, as people who could be expended. And of course, the law tries to protect women in so many ways. Uh, but as we think about the time of the, the writing of the law of Moses, I, I believe that Genesis 1 stands as, as kind of a beacon that says, our view of women, the proper view of women, is not to see them as inferior in any way, but rather to see them as image bearers. In other words, just like all of those other statements are over and against their culture, so is the statement of a woman being made in the image of God. And, and here's why that's important for what follows. I actually think that that piece of information, that fact, helps govern our interpretation of the events that flow out of it. So as we think about the creation of the woman, as Brian described, as a co-heir and as a co-laborer with the man, and why do I say co-laborer? Because they're both given the command to be fruitful, multiply, rule, and subdue the earth. Um, as they both participate in this image bearing, we see that played out in Genesis chapter 2. Now, the main point of disagreement that I'm going to have with Brian, and I'm looking forward to kind of uh, picking this up and picking this apart, is that I do think that even though uh, the, the verb in Genesis chapter 2, uh, it, it does occur in the Nephal stem in Hebrew, which is a different stem, it is the same word that's used in the other naming formulas. Uh, so Brian's essential claim is that because it's in the Nephal, it's not a naming formula. 
I actually think that in the narrative flow of Genesis 2, it is meant to be a naming formula. In other words, I do think that Adam is recognizing something about Eve, but even what he recognizes is that unlike the animals that he has named, he now sees Eve as someone who is essentially like him. In other words, I think Adam's recognition in Genesis 2 is to say, I've named all these other animals, but just like God said, there was no suitable helper. I think Adam recognized that, which is why, again, his name is Ish as man, and he says of the wife, she is Isha, or she shall be called Isha. Now, in one sense, it's, it's not him uh, naming her, but rather recognizing that God has made her like him. So I kind of agree with Brian, but I think the man is making the recognition in a somewhat authoritative way. Now, here's where I want to, to put a huge asterisk and, and just say up front, one of the reasons we're having this conversation is there are streams of theology that place a huge significance on Adam naming Eve in Genesis chapter 2 and essentially say that's that's sort of the, the fountain of hierarchical relationships that occur in the Bible, and they say, oh, and by the way, this occurs pre-fall. And to me, here's, here's why I come at it. I agree that it is naming, but I think it misses the point if we don't see that Adam's act of naming Eve in Genesis 2 was essentially recognizing her equality with him and the necessity of the role that she plays in the function that God has given them within creation. So again, the fundamental disagreement is I think Adam does name her in Genesis 2, but I think what he names her is even more important. He says she is woman. Why? Because she is like me. She's unlike everything else. She's above everything else. She's on an equal plane with me. And again, you can see how I see Genesis 1 governing that. Uh, but then when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we do have a renaming. Uh, we have a renaming where Adam comes along, and again, it's the same verb, but it's a different stem. And, and it's a little bit difficult to explain this, I, I think, Brian, uh, but essentially it's the same word, but when uh, a Hebrew word occurs in a different stem, at times the meaning or significance of it can change pretty radically. Uh, and so the naming in Genesis chapter 3 is the same verb, but a different stem. I don't think that the different stem is highly significant, and I think that Brian does. But here's why I, where I also agree with Brian, is that I think in calling her Eve and in naming her Eve, uh, essentially what Adam is doing there is recognizing that the promise of God will come true. In fact, I think it might even be him recognizing that the promise of God that one day an offspring of the woman would stomp the head of the serpent, I think it might even be recognizing that one day, through Eve and through her line, salvation will come. Now, that's a deep, deep shadow if it's there, but I think when he says mother of all living things, he's pointing to the faithfulness of God in working out that plan. Uh, but here's why I don't think, even in Genesis 3, the act of naming is really an act of authoritative naming. Here's why. Because in Genesis chapter 4, we have Eve naming, and again, same verb, and actually uh, it's, it's the same stem that occurs there in Genesis chapter 3. Eve names her son, and he, she names him Seth. And then interestingly, you flip just a few verses to Genesis chapter 5, and it says that Adam names his son Seth. Well, which is it? Well, apparently they both name him, but here's what I don't see anyone argue. I don't think that the naming of Seth by Eve is somehow a statement of her authority. 
And so I'm arguing that if you want to see Genesis 3 as a statement of authority, Adam over Eve, then somehow you've got to account for Eve having an authority over her son uh, in Genesis chapter 4. Now, some might argue that. I'm not aware of it. But here's my point. I don't think that the act of naming is meant to be a symbol of hierarchy really at all. Um, And I I read that because, again, of my fundamental premise in Genesis chapter 1, and because, interestingly enough, when we look to the New Testament— And sometimes uh, we might use this as too much of a cheat sheet. But when you look at the New Testament, nowhere in any of Jesus' teachings, any of Paul's teachings, any of Peter or the apostles' teachings, do they talk about the naming of the woman as a significant factor in male and female relationships. They do talk about, say, the order of creation, but they don't talk about naming as significant. And so I think just in general, my position is I don't think the naming of these people uh, is authoritative. I don't think it's meant to be taken uh, in, in a kind of weighty way, as some people try to kind of theologize and build upon. Uh, but I do think that Genesis 2 speaks about naming. I think Genesis 3 speaks about naming. I think Genesis 4 speaks about naming. And Genesis 5, oh, and by the way, uh, we have even more names that come later on in Genesis. They are significant, but I don't think they necessitate that the person naming another is their authority. And I'd love to talk about that more. But that's my position, Brian. Uh, it's a little bit less uh, maybe energetic than others, uh, but I think that's part of the point is that sometimes it's possible to overread and uh, over-imply from certain texts things that aren't there. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, that is my position, and uh, and I would be glad to uh, let you rip it apart. So go for it, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for outlining that, Tim. Some really good points. Um, and before we jump into the questions we have for one another, I want to just again invite chat you following along with us, please feel free to start throwing questions in there because we have some lined up, but then we will happily bring you in. So let me start by just uh, agreeing with your agreement, Tim, how very Baptist of us. I want to echo the echo <laughs> of my echo. Um, yes. uh, when we read the Genesis accounts, I, I do think they're polemical. I, I think that's very important, right? Mm-hmm. We need to understand that these are being written to people that aren't at the creation event, but right there, they've just been freed from uh, Egypt. They're trying to form this national identity. So Genesis 1, highly polemical. I think we do not spend enough time in Genesis 1 realizing the radical egalitarian nature of it. And I I don't mean that term in egalitarian in a loaded theological sense, but just the idea of, oh my goodness, in a highly patriarchal sense, this is not only expanding the image of God, not just from kings to people, but not Mm -hmm. just men, but to men and women. Like, it's yeah. hard to overstate how countercultural that idea is in Genesis 1. And that yeah. should kind of push us through. And so I very much agree with that. It's actually because I agree with that, though, I, I think I like my or prefer my reading to Genesis 3 because, again, it is polemical. We have mm-hmm. to understand how do we get from the world that was to the world that is. And I think Genesis 3 is the answer to that. How did we move from this beautiful bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, co-image bearers and a appreciation of that to the world we have. Mm-hmm. Um, what changed? At least that's how I would fit Genesis 3 in. Genesis 3 is the showing of that. Hey, something broke. Uh, and it's not just esoteric or odd. It's something very practical. Mm-hmm. This loving relationship, this nakedness and not ashamed is gone um, mm-hmm. and gone forevermore. So, um, 
But yeah, I very much agree that Genesis 1 is polemical. So Tim, a question for you, if you don't mind. Yes, absolutely. So you, you use the term both naming and authoritative naming. Did you Do you mean the same thing by that? Is there naming that... All right, yeah. let me make this a clear question. Is all naming non-authoritative? Are there some namings that are authoritative? And if so, how would we know? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I think that that crystallizes my position in one sense, because I think, for example, when Eve names her son Seth at the end of Genesis chapter four, that's, a to me, a clear example of a naming that doesn't carry with it authority. Um, or if it, it if it does carry with it authority, I don't think it does. But if someone did claim that, I think they would have to essentially say that both the naming in Genesis three and Genesis four do come with uh, authoritative overtones. But here's here's what I would say: um, I don't think every act of naming does connote authority from the person who names the person to the person who is named. I think uh, some naming can just be more mundane than that. But where it can get kind of fuzzy is. When God renames someone, it obviously is an authoritative naming. Um, and, and that's true in basically every case, right? Especially because God's naming or renaming really comes with, with the overtones of destiny. I'm naming you this because this is who you are going to be and what you are going to live out. Now, uh, for Adam, uh, here's what I would say. Context has to be key in terms of what's going on in that act of naming. And I would actually say that when he says Eve, your name is going to be called Eve, that that's almost a conciliatory kind of moment. Uh, and, and this is where, Brian, I think what you're saying, if I understand it correctly, is that we're supposed to read that naming as a tragic moment, where now he sort of usurps an authority that wasn't meant to be there. Um, and I'd be interested uh, to, to have you explain, you know, do you think is that that's something, and you basically did, you said that that's a sinful and a sinful use of authority rather than sort of a tragic necessity in a fallen world. Um, but I don't. I just don't think it's authoritative, really, at all. I think it, it could actually be considered conciliatory, where whereas he has already blamed her, right, earlier in Genesis three, he now says essentially, okay, we've got to come together, uh, and we've got to continue to pursue what God has called us to do, but now in a broken world. And so, in calling her Eve or in naming her Eve, he's essentially stating, I believe that the promise of God will come to fruition. So. In, in simple answer to your question, I think there are namings that are more mundane. I don't think it's definitionally an authoritative act. And I think we see examples of that. Genesis 4, like I mentioned, uh, we could also see uh, just other acts of what I might call mundane naming. For instance, at the end of the book of Ruth, right? You have, uh, they'll, they'll call his name Obed, and then it, it goes all the way down through the line to Jesse. I don't think we have to see in every act of naming an act of authority, even though uh, those namings do have some kind of sense of destiny that might be associated with them. Wait, so which one is it? Do names have significance when they are being interjected in the story and authority for it, or do they not? Yeah, so I, I guess what I want to say is, like, uh, thinking of, okay, the end of the book of Ruth, I think it could indicate destiny, but not indicate authority. So okay. I think it can be, I, can, I think the significance of a name uh, can be real and legitimate, and I think that's true in Genesis chapter 3, without author an authoritative role being attached to it. Okay, so um, 
Let me let me give uh, one more example in the New Testament, Brian, just before I move okay. on. The naming of Jesus, right? I mean, there is no authority in one sense. Uh, it, it, if, if there is a sense of authority in, you know, Mary, you're going to call his name Jesus in the book of Luke, or in Matthew, you're going to call his name Jesus. Uh, I don't think that that is uh, them asserting their authority in any real sense, even though it does indicate his destiny, you'll provide salvation for your people. But the problem there is, one, she's not coming up with the name. She's been given the name. And two, True. that's no longer True. the same culture. Uh, the culture of first century Roman times is not the ancient Near Eastern culture of the 18th, 19th, or 20th century. So we would have to see, does Roman culture have the same presupposition about names? And they have some, but I don't think to the same extent we have um, this far back. So I would say that doesn't apply. Fair enough. So fair enough. Yeah, I guess that would be my my pushback here um, on two things you've said. Ten first, yeah. What other examples do we have from the time and culture that naming isn't something that has more significance? Um, now you've brought up parents naming children a couple times. Right. Don't parents have authority over children? Isn't that a key part of familial relationships? So we're using the word authority. Maybe the word hierarchy again. Tr not trying to load it here but the fact that we are now not all on equal footing all the time. So mm -hmm. what that hierarchy looks between people and between different generations is not identical, but the idea that there's now an imbalance, that there is some sort of this one is over that one, which was mm -hmm. not intended in the original creation is at effect of the fall, but is now part of the operation, at least of familial units going forward. Um, I would say, because you put the dilemma, and it's a good point, right? If I say it's there in three, I have to say it's there in four. And I'd say it's there in four. Um, that seems to be implied of parents to kids. Yeah, and, and to that, I think I would respond, there's a distinction between the natural authority that a parent has over the child and the act of naming as an expression of that authority. So I, I think you could even push it forward into Genesis chapter 5, uh, uh, later on where Noah is said to be named, right? Uh, and there mm -hmm. are only two people uh, in that, if I'm remembering it correctly. Uh, in Genesis chapter 5, you go down the entire list of the genealogy, and then eventually, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it uh, here in the English translation. So Lamech was 182 years old. This is verse 28, when he fathered a son, and he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So it obviously speaks to his destiny, but I don't think it's like, you know, his father standing up and saying, this is my authority and I'm expressing it. I think those are two different things. So yes, there is a natural authority that parents have over their kids, but I don't think the act of naming is itself standing up, claiming that authority and saying, as an act of authority, I am naming them. I think it has more to do with destiny than it does authority. But is there any distinction there? It's not like the parent consults the child. It says the, the parents stand up and say, this shall be your name. I'm not saying it's malicious. I'm not saying it's it's evil. And so that's the thing that's going to start switching on once hierarchy is introduced to human relationships. I think that's a sin. But now it's part of the world. And now we have to deal with that. Um, I don't know if we can say that that is there going forward. And I'm trying to pull up real yeah. quick on my Bible software. Is Karah used? Do we have naming formulas going in there? We because do. Because there, there are yeah. multiple ways to recognize names. 
it, all of them are Kara in, in, in every instance that we've mentioned. So you can look there in uh, verse 29 of chapter, uh, chapter 5, mm-hmm. and it yep, says, it says the exact same thing. And, and here's yeah, what I would say, though, because I, I, I do want to push back on that a little bit in the sense of, okay, a, a parent might recognize a destiny for instance, with Noah, right? Noah sounds very similar to rest. So again, there's kind of this homophonic sort of wordplay that's going on. But mm-hmm. Lamech doesn't have the authority to make that his destiny. Um, so again, I don't think the act of naming is an expression of Lamech's authority. I think it's it, it's his expression of someone else's authority. And yet, whose authority is it to create that destiny? It's God's, right? So the, the parent is not expressing their authority in the act of naming. Um, I think they're actually recognizing a higher authority, which could be, even in Genesis 3, that what Adam is doing there is recognizing that God has given you this destiny as the mother of all living things. Um, so I, I think fundamentally, and, and the more I think about it, the more I at least want it to be this way, that doesn't make it this way, uh, that, that as I think about the act of naming, yes, in every act that God names someone, it is as an expression of his authority. But uh, I don't think that's true in every act of human naming. Okay. Um, so yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, Brian, I just I just wanted to throw it back to you because I am interested mm-hmm. in this. And can you just explain a little bit more uh, to our listeners about the the use in Genesis two uh, where Adam in the knee fall stem calls her name Eve. Can you just re-explain that uh, in, in terms of you seeing that as God has already essentially named her, uh, and or, or at least, I don't know if you would say he's named her or if he is, des- you know, what you would exactly say, but can you go ahead and re-explain that? And then I might have a question or two to follow up. Yeah, so um, in, in Genesis 2, at the very end, when Adam sees, or the man uh, sees her, Right. She says she or he says she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man and the she shall be called say that 10 times fast um, (laughs) is the same verb used a couple times earlier already in Genesis 2 and 19 and 20 uh, about and God brought the animals to Adam and then Adam named them. And it's the same verb that's going to be used again in Genesis 3. However, it is a different stem. All the other stems, all the other uses of kara in Genesis 2 and 3 are in the cow stem. Um, and we could talk about what the cow means. Um, the cow is your default, basically, English, uh, Hebrew stem. It doesn't one-to-one correlate with like a tense in English. But in general, it's past, the perfect, um, the present sometimes. Interestingly, it's not the future, which we can talk about that with the name. The NIV, I don't think, does Eve any service by saying she will be the mother of the living. It's never in the future, as far as I know. Um, But realize uh, in 2.20 specifically, when Adam names the animals, and in 3.20, it is this cow stem. In fact, it's the exact same formulation of the word, the exact same word. Mm -hmm. When Adam uses it in... Uh, at the end of chapter two, though, when he sees the woman coming to him, he puts it in the nafal stem. Now, in Hebrew, sometimes stems are just the equivalent of changing tense in English, but sometimes they have very different meanings of the word. Something can be, can not radically, but substantially change its context or usage in a language based on the stem. Mm-hmm. The uh, verb kara that we're looking at is a very common word in Hebrew. Um, I think it's over 680 occurrences in the entire Old Testament. 
So it's all throughout. Okay. Mm. If you look at the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament and look at the Nafal stem, it is never once used to refer to someone naming something. It is. It has a couple uses, and when it talks about names, it's always about recognizing what name is used to call this thing. So let me give you an example. I, I skipped over in outlining my view, but if you go to Isaiah 54, 5, mm-hmm. uh, we read, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. That's the Nafal of Korah. Now, mm-hmm. Tim, we would be in full agreement, right? That you can't read Isaiah 54 and go, ah, see, look, the barren one has named God. Mm-hmm. That's not what the verb means. It's recognizing you, this is what it is called by. Uh, this land was called, right, uh, Rephaim or something like that. Mm-hmm. It always is use of name recognition. And so I think that's important. When Adam sees her, when the man sees her, he recognizes the name. And I would say it comes from God. God instills this goes back to my view of linguistic theory. I think language comes from God. So I think he gives her and him the names. That's why they're related. I think there's a lot of value and meaning in that. Mm-hmm. If, to your point, if the end of Genesis 3 is a reconciliation, trying to build the bridge back that just got burned down because Adam threw her under the bus, <laughs> why does he not use the Nafal? Wouldn't that be a beautiful recognition of her role that was and still is going forward? Instead, he uses the same verb to name animals. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems significant. It seems very significant that the fall is never used to name something anywhere else. Uh, why in a, a span of just a few verses do we have three occurrences of the word, two are in one stem, and the third one is in the other stem? That mm-hmm. seems to be an intentional choice, not just grasping at straws, but that we have something very significant being called out in that poem. Mm-hmm. So that would be the the further kind of explanation of that point. Yeah. And and so, Brian, here's, here's my question for you, uh, because to me, of course, the grammar and the use of the nephal, right, this is part of why we believe that, uh, you know, a full verbal inerrancy is so important, right? We believe that's significant, and so we have to account for it. Uh, my tendency, I can just say, is to say, okay, that would be a pretty major kind of break in the story. And I understand what you're saying, or you can correct me if you think I don't. Uh, but you're saying that that use of the nephal is intentional to essentially set this aside as distinct from the other acts of naming, because the other acts of naming are described in a different stem, whereas this one is described in the nephal. Um, and Brian, uh, am I am I understanding correctly that, that that's you see that as significant as kind of yes he's calling her but he's calling her a name that essentially God has already assigned so he's more recognizing the place that God has given her rather than sort of assigning her a place himself is that is that fair enough I would say that's fair because the naming of the animals in the context of Genesis two has three key points it's showing right. that Adam has creative power over the world he's been placed in. It shows he has dominion over the animals, right? right? That is part of Genesis 1. And I might ask you if you think that the naming shows dominion over the animals there. Um, and then it's supposed to show that he's not like them. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, I would say this is supposed to intentionally put it in a different category because she is not that. Um, right. I don't right. see any examples of equals giving each other names in any significant text. Not outside, I mean, I'm not talking about genealogies. I'm talking about as we're talking about true 
I don't want to use the word cultic because that might be misunderstood. But right when we're talking about we're talking about the gods and, and humans and their interactions, when we're talking about those types of stories, I never see equals giving each other names in any of these stories in any culture in the ancient Near East. It is always a superior to an inferior. So my concern is if we see that as a naming convention, you are quite right. quite right, and I don't put you in the camp of those that go, oh, see, men are better from the creation story. That's right. not your position. I don't think that's your position. But I do worry, how can we fully slam the door shut on that if we say this is a naming act? Because we have to pull right. in modern thinking about naming here. So sorry, uh, that was more long-winded answer. Yes, that is my basic position. Yeah, and, and I think my answer to that is, I think it is a naming convention, and I think what he names her is more important than that he names her. Um, so the naming convention, it, it's not simply, uh, you know, that he calls her Isha is essentially his recognition uh, that she is, again, like him, that she's taken from him, that she's a gift of God. And that's where she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is so important, mm -hmm. because it's Adam recognizing her essential equality with him in essence, uh, even as there is a distinction in function to some degree. Uh, but here's where, and, and here's where I think even Genesis 1 is helpful in that, uh, and that's because the commandments to rule, subdue the earth, to, to uh, you know, have dominion over the animals is given explicitly to both of them, right? I mean, the commandment mm -hmm. is given to male and female. And so I think it adds even a rhetorical punch to say, okay, Adam recognized this essential equality that she has with him. And then I think on the other side uh, of the equation, post-fall, right, in Genesis 3, I don't see it, again, as an assertion of his authority over her, but rather as, again, uh, an awareness or recognition of her destiny as, as the one who would uh, fulfill the calling that God had given her in Genesis 3. Um, but I, I will say, Brian, you know, when it comes to the knee fall stem, that's something that I, I want to look at because I'm, I've, I've got it pulled up here and, and kind of while you've been talking, I've been looking at the, the various uses of this. Here's, here's mm -hmm. what I would say. You know, it just it doesn't seem to me uh, I, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but it looks like of the 600 or so, uh, you know, uses of Karah, there may be only about 10 in the knee fall stem. Uh, I could be misreading that, but Brian, if, if you have more information on that, do you know about how many times it's used in the knee fall? So, um, correct so, me if I'm wrong and Halla, if you see the cross at the end of an entry, that means every entry had, every example is given, correct? Correct. Yes. So there are, oh, I counted up earlier. I think there are 42 uses. So okay. not like highly rare, but it, that is right. Less than one tenth of all uses of this verb. So that tells me that that's a significant choice. Um, why would mm -hmm. you change stems mid-story if it isn't yeah. significant? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good good question. I'm looking here at Hallett as well. So this is just kind of on the mm -hmm. fly, uh, but it it has at least in in one in one reference it gives some uh, it gives some definitions. And by the way, this is just a pause and, and for a moment to say what Brian and I are doing. What we're doing is basically looking at a reference work here, right? Uh, when we say that a word is used in a certain stem, there are reference works that we can then open up and it gives us, in some cases, every single time it's used in that. Uh, and so what I want to do is to say, oh, wow, this wasn't something that I had really thought about. So I want to go back and look at how this word is used in that particular stem to see if Brian's claim holds up to scrutiny, right? He says that this is never used as a, an explicit act uh, of uh, of of naming, 
uh, as a mm-hmm. formula in the way that it's used in the call stem. So that's something I want to look at. And, uh, obviously and see, that's, it, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off. No, I, I mean, that's, that's part of, that's part of what it means to be a student of the word is to say that, okay, just because the same word is used, if there's an intentional variation, then somehow we have to account for the variation in its significance. For me, uh, you know, the knee fall is often used in the passive voice. Perhaps it is. And, and this is where I'm kind of intrigued by your interpretation. Perhaps Adam is recognizing God's hand in creating Eve, right? She will mm-hmm. be called. That's often, especially in Greek, but I think it also happens in Hebrew, a use of the divine passive uh, where it could be significant. I actually think uh, the same thing happens. There's a use of the Nephal in Genesis 9 and Genesis 9-6 yep. that is uh, incredibly important. Um, so I'd just like to do more research on that to see if, uh, if I think Brian's claim holds up. So thank you for pointing that out, Brian. Well, sure. And, and all I was going to jump in and say, listeners, this is something I think Tim and I would both hope that all of you would do that you'd never take our word or right. Just, just because you've been told it is there. Um, mm-hmm. We're called to have a defense for the hope that is within us. And that requires not just parroting other views, but actually checking claims and digging deeper into the word. That's part of our hope in this podcast is this pushes us to know God's word better. Right. Um, at the end of the day, I don't care if my view is right or Tim's view is right. I want to find what's true and cleave to that. So um, yeah, Thank you for kind of uh, living that out for us in the moment, Tim. Because, um, yeah, it. I, I think, I mean, you keep using the word recognition because that's, and I would say that is what I think is the heart of that, the the Nafal is, is a recognition of who she is. And that's what I see lost in, in three, when he, he reverts yeah. back to what he was doing with the animals. And I go, that's, that's the tragedy. Now he gives her a good name. Now the, um, maybe we can pivot just a little bit here if you're okay with this. Sure. Part of the difficulty of her name, though, is it's almost backward looking. Um, so <laughs> again, she is named uh, the mother of life, but again, it's in the cow, which is either past perfect or present, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, in each of those instances, that's why I said the trivia thing. I I think this is implying, and we have other things that show it, um, that she's already had kids. And so this is kind of this this interesting hinge of trusting that we have been able to fulfill the divine command to be fruitful, multiply, and I'm trusting that we will continue to do so. Now, obviously, many commentators don't take that. That's not the, uh, shall we say, historic position on the text. Um, But it is kind of interesting. I think her name is both backward-looking and forward-looking. We're at this interesting Mm -hmm. hinge point as we move from pre-fall to uh, reality, unfortunately, as we have it, which is broken, which does not have a this beautiful unity of the sexes, as it were, but instead uh, a relationship characterized by trials and by power games and by fundamentally not recognizing the image-bearing nature of the other, um, is what I would say. So yeah. anything in there like that you want to talk about or have questions, Tim, or yeah, uh, where so- would you like to go with this? So how would you understand it, Brian? Because I think, you know, if pressed, I would say, I don't think that she had kids at that point. I don't think the name has to imply that she does. The reason I would lean that way, and and this is what I want to know what you think, is that immediately in Genesis 4, it says the man knew his wife, which is just a euphemism for sexual relationship, right? The intimacy, and, and that I think speaks to the conciliatory nature of what I'm saying. 
uh, there was some kind of uh, reconciliation that took place. The man knew his wife, symbolizing the intimacy of, of the sexual act. Uh, and it says she conceived, right? And then the children do have names. And so this is actually, I think, in keeping with a, a question that just popped up in the chat, if there were children who had names, I think it's a great question. If there were children that already existed and they had names, uh, did they have names but she didn't? And then I would just follow up and and say, on your interpretation, how would you see uh, maybe the the chronology of Genesis chapter four? Is that going back in time, kind of like you know uh, a flat a flashback, or is that something that took place in the future? But we just have a lot of unnamed children of Adam and Eve that are kind of running about. Yeah, so very good question, a very timely question that came in from chat, because um, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that till right now. So <laughs> if naming denotes some sort of hierarchy, and I'm claiming that hierarchy is not initially part of the creation story, mm-hmm. at least between married couples, maybe it is in parents and children, but I'm not going to make that claim, but that's maybe a way we could go forward. Um, I could argue that God gives them names as well. Right. So um, they would Mm. still be people from the image bearers. Maybe he's still doing that. I don't know because the text is going to be silent on that. So Mm -hmm. I would maybe concede to you, Tim, pre-fall is the only time you can have naming without authority Mm. because you could have true naming amongst equals. I don't think you can have that post-fall, but maybe you have that there. I don't know. Regarding Genesis 4, uh, nowhere does it say Cain is the firstborn. So that's the key point. So uh, I don't think we're going backward in time. Cain is born post-fall. I I, I see no reason to have trouble with that. Right. Um, But notice, speaking of Cain's story, the other reasons why I think we can surmise she's already had kids is that after killing his brother, Cain's afraid of a lot of people, that they're going to come and kill me. Right. So he runs away, and he runs away and finds more people. Where did all these people come from that Cain settles (laughs) with? Well, if... so. Right in the text, there's no chronology marker between Genesis 2 and 3. How long were they in that pre-fall state? I surmise it's been at least a little while and that there are, there are kids, there are people spreading out. The mandate is being fulfilled. I would also point out that the curse says your pain will be multiplied in childbirth. Mm-hmm. An after picture only makes sense if you have a before picture. Mm. Pain being multiplied is meaningless unless she's already had a kid. Right. Otherwise, it'd be like, well, how do I know this is any worse than before? I mean, I'll take God's word for it, but um, I think you need a before picture to make sense of the after. I think Adam needs to work the garden to then see why it is now worse. And I, I think at least for Adam, we both say, yeah, that's probably happened. So why not for Eve? So, Brian, on on that interpretation, would you see pain as an inherent part of childbearing even before the fall? Why is pain sinful? Because that's the challenge. It's like it's pain right, introduced right. through the fall. I don't think pain is necessarily sinful. Pain warns us quite helpfully sometimes of don't do this, don't do that. Um, I don't see the experience of pain as necessarily being an effect of the fall. Gotcha. Yeah, fair enough. And and these are like these are in one sense uh, on any interpretation that that any either of us would give, and this is true of any text. We have to try and figure out what are the loose ends that need to be tied up, right? If we want to be consistent, yeah. uh, we've, we've got to answer those questions. And so 
uh, for you, Brian, the appeal to this interpretation is that it it coincides with the incredible statement we see in Genesis chapter one. Uh, it accounts for the unique creation in Genesis chapter two of the woman by God, so that the naming is just a continuation of her creation. Uh, and then it also, on your view, gives an account of uh, the fall in Genesis three. It gives an account for why there's many people in Genesis chapter four. So essentially, you've offered a lot of advantages in your position. Uh, and, and, and I recognize those. Um, I think for me, uh, it, I, I have a little bit more of an instinctual kind of aversion to say that there's, there's pain in, in a pre-fall world. Uh, I'd have to just think about that more. On the one mm. hand, uh, like, you're right, pain is not inherently sinful. In fact, it can be good, right? So would I say that the nerve endings that Adam and Eve had were not able uh, to feel pain? Uh, no, I don't think I'd say that. But at the same time, uh, when I think of when I think of Cain and Abel, point taken, they're not described as the firstborn. But I do think you can see it at least a little bit that there are potential acts of naming that are not inherently authoritative. Uh, and so I would say I see that on the other side as well. Um, uh, again, the 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 fuzziness to me, and this is this is as I kind of crystallize in my mind. I think. When God names, God always names authoritatively. Um, but I think that when parents name or when names are recorded in Scripture, it's primarily about the destiny of the individual, not really about the authority of the person. Like, that's not the highlight. That's not, I think, what's highlighted in Genesis 5 when Lamech names Noah. I don't think that's highlighted at the end of Ruth whenever, uh, whenever Obed is named. Um, so that, and that's something that if I really wanted to, you know, go to the mat on that, I'd really have to look, okay, here are all the instances of naming. Here's a clear instance, uh, where we have an act of naming that's not inherently authoritative. The problem is, uh, how would I do that whenever a parent always does have some kind of authority over their child? But again, my claim isn't that the parent doesn't have authority. My claim is, is that the act of naming is not in itself an expression of that authority, um, that it's more of a happenstance kind of relationship. Uh, but Brian, mm. let's, uh, let's uh, I'm taking a look here at the chat because we're coming close on our time. Uh, so yeah, it, well, while you're doing that, Tim, I actually have a question for you, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, go for it. Would you be, would you, so uh, the, the, the question about naming pre-fall is actually quite interesting. I'm going to have to spend some time thinking about that. Uh, yeah. Adam doesn't even, it's unclear when Adam's name becomes Adam rather than just right. the man right. um, in, in the text. Uh, yeah. So it, it's unclear if names of, in the sense that we've been using it. Uh, how they operated pre-fall. So I'll need to think about that. I could right. ameliorate the problem by just saying, I don't think Eve had kids, but that would be disingenuous. I do think she had kids. So right. let me wrestle with that a little bit. Question for you though, um, the naming formula mm -hmm. um, as having significance, would you be open to a position that says in Genesis 1 through 11, we do have some sort of unique genre. There, There's something different in Genesis 1 through 11 than, say, in Ruth, than, say, in Kings. Yeah. Um, and not to put you too much on the spot, would that, would you be more open to saying the, the rules of this genre are going to be pulling more in that idea of naming having significance that we're going to drop when we move to straight genealogy, straight history? What would you say to that, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot? No, I don't mind. I don't think you're going to like my answer, though. 
uh, because I actually don't think it, it, I don't think the genre changes it. Um, in fact, I, and this is, this is kind of maybe a skeleton in my closet. Uh, most, most scholars of Genesis one through 11 see it as a fundamentally different genre, proto history. You know, there's, there's a, a lot of things going on there, especially in Genesis four, also with the flood. But here's, here's why I don't, I think Genesis one through 11 is meant to be taken uh, and Genesis one may be a little bit different for various reasons than two, two and following, but I really put a lot of stock in the Toledope formula that begins, mm -hmm. uh, that begins, uh, there at the end of Genesis two. So as, as we think about that Toledope formula, I think that the Toledope really, uh, should shape our sense of what the genre is. Uh, and I also think that even though there are kind of strange features like the, the, the longevity of the, you know, antediluvian people. And then as the fall, or I'm sorry, as the flood happens and then, you know, post flood, uh, the, the ages slowly kind of go down. I think that later on in Genesis, whenever, and this is, this is a weird aside. So Brian, this is kind of a, a curveball to your curveball that you threw me, uh, perhaps it's like when, when Jacob stands before Pharaoh and Jacob mm -hmm. is an old man, uh, Jake, Jacob goes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, how can you be so old? And I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how old Jacob was, maybe 130. Was that right? When he stood before Pharaoh, uh, something like that. He's extremely old by any kind of modern standard. Uh, and Pharaoh says, how can you be so old? And, uh, and his response is my years have not even come close to the years of my father's. And I think at the end of Genesis, uh, in a text that is supposed to be historical, and of course that opens a whole can of worm as to whether Genesis kind of 37 through 50 is a different genre completely. Uh, and I think you said you believe that Joseph perhaps wrote that. Uh, very fascinating. But bottom line is, I think that even though there are very interesting and unique literary features, I do think that fundamentally it's meant to be taken as history in Genesis 1 through 11. Okay. I, I just was curious if that'd be way forward. Um, listeners, yeah. uh, Tola Dote, the, the Hebrew he's referred to a couple of times in Genesis, uh, is the, the kind of recognized marker of moving between the stories. It's the phrase, these are the generations of, so you see it in two, four, you see it kind of at the beginning of each major narrative. So those are generally recognized as the markers. And the question is, do we change genre between those markers or not? So, um, very well put though, Tim, thank you for that. Um, Question in the chat, does God ever refer to Eve? I don't think God ever talks to Eve. So I don't think he ever uses that name post uh, chapter three. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, no, that's a fascinating question. Mm -hmm. uh, and and honestly, I, I love both of those questions because they really, in one sense, highlight the weakness of both of our positions, <laughs> Brian. Uh, yeah. it, because in a sense, it could be, uh, if I'm if I'm reading into that perhaps correctly, if Adam names her Eve but God doesn't, is that in a sense subversive? Uh, or what is the significance of that? You know, that's a really yeah. good question. So thank you for bringing that up, listener, and uh, and and helping us think through this a little bit better. So just because we only have a few minutes left, let me throw out a curveball to the curveball to the curveball. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Something that gets interesting with this whole naming conversation as soon as you start getting into the non-Hebrew old versions of the Old Testament vis-a-vis -vis the Septuagint. So the Septuagint listeners is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, 
it's interesting. Eve's name in the Bible shows up in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, back to back. The difficulty is the Greek uses two different words for her name. Uh, I was mentioning this to Tim just before we got started. Uh, yeah. In Genesis 3, they use the word zoe, which just means life. That's clearly a title, not a name. Because then in Genesis 4, when it turns around and says that this person has a has a son, they use the term ue, which eventually becomes Eve. Um, so there's something fascinating. The interpreters or the translators of the Septuagint interpreted Genesis 3 not as a name, but as a title. Um, so that now throws in a whole new kind of context. I think, Tim, if you go that way, that maybe supports your view a little bit more. It is mm-hmm. still odd that we'd use the exact same formula as we do with the animals. Um, so maybe that problem still remains. But now it's not even a name. Now it's a title that he is like or a role that he's bestowed upon her, um, which does get back a little bit to the naming. So uh, yeah. rolling it all back, I had argued, right, that naming something says you have discernment to rightly name it. I think mm-hmm. Tim and I both agree, because Tim, you keep saying parents give kids names for a hope for their future, right? Something that they're going to do that God will fulfill. That's mm-hmm. discernment, I, w- I would argue. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're just debating on, does it also give power for anyone that wants to to read right. something that will actually support Tim's view. Uh, George Ramsey wrote an article in the Catholic biblical quarterly called is name giving an act of domination. Right. Uh, he yeah. argues no. And so uh, there's a nice little piece for you. If you want to uh, review it, David Klein's and I didn't find it terribly convincing. <laughs> I found it through David Klein's article <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. But Tim, let me throw it over to you for some last thoughts and then I'll take us on home. Yeah, no, I I think this is such an interesting discussion. And here's here's my kind of bottom line takeaway. I definitely don't think that the acts of naming, whatever their significance is, both within the narratives uh, that that describe them, uh, and just within a larger biblical theology, I don't think that we can build a a large theological tower on the act of naming itself. And that's where fundamentally, I, I think I, I do come at it at a different angle uh, than some people that I have otherwise maybe a lot of agreements with. Uh, but I, I come back to that idea that, again, as the New Testament describes even the relationship between man and woman, I think, one, there is this kind of realistic expectation that we still live in a fallen world, but also it never, uh, no author points to the act of naming as significant in determining uh, a kind of continuous reality between man and woman. And so uh, I just don't think we can build a lot on this uh, or really say, well, the act of naming means X, Y, or Z in a continuous way. Uh, I just think that there's uh, a lot of other things that are more important in that debate. So again, in one sense, I'm saying there's a lot less here than people might see. And in one sense, it might be a bit more mundane uh, than some people might suggest. have to unmute my mic. All right. Thank you for that, Tim. Um, and, and yeah, I'm going to just close by saying I, I let's not lose sight. I agree with you very much. Let's not lose sight of the forest through the trees here. Yeah. Um, these stories show a beautiful uh, hope for human relationships, what it means to be co-image bearers, a beautiful love between the man and the woman that then is tragically destroyed. No matter what we read into the naming, uh, it is lost to some extent. 
right? Then the consequences of the fall go forward. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting talk. We encourage you to keep digging into the text, digging into the details, because as people who take the Bible seriously, we don't think details are accidental. We don't yes. think they're just thrown in there for no reason. So go out there, keep studying the word. Next week, listeners, we have a fun episode in store for you. So my co-host, for some reason, thinks he can go take a vacation uh, <laughs> and is not going to be here. So instead, I've invited in one of my co-workers, Dr. Christian Wilder. He's a professor of Old Testament at GCU with me. He's going to come in and we're going to talk through Second Temple Judaism, what mm. it is and why it matters and how it really can impact our reading of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We really hope you've been enjoying these CounterPoint series. We do this because we have a passion for it and also a passion to share it. Please feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or feedback that you may have. And we hope that you'd share our content out there with your friends. As always, until next time, stay cool and stay old. Have a great night, everyone.